people. We feel like we're a family now because I spoke last night, and we don't know the Saturday night crowd at all, and the 9 o'clock crowd we don't know too well either. But we know a number of you, and so it's a real joy to be here. Wasn't the worship good this morning? You know, I mean, not just the people up there, but I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I, I want to tell you of the three services, my first time going all three services, I want to tell you that the worship from you this morning really just blessed me. I, I don't know what it was like sitting where you're sitting, but hearing everybody around just sing to their heart's content, that was just a wonderful, wonderful time. I enjoyed it so much. You know, we're in the middle of a series in the summer, and the series is on lessons from the life of Jesus. When Pastor Dan asked me to speak, he actually didn't assign me one of those topics. He asked me to speak on something instead that I spoke about last fall to the, to the men's breakfast. I believe it was in October. He asked me to bring the same subject to you this morning. And so I said to him, I, I would be thrilled to be able to do that. This morning, I'm going to be talking to you about what I believe is the greatest crisis facing the church in America. The greatest crisis facing the church. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions as I start here, too. And here are my assumptions. The first one is that everybody in the room knows a kid. That you know some kid. Is that true? Everybody know a kid. You know, like 12 years or down or something. You know one. All right. Second assumption is this. You love one. You know, it may be a grandkid, it may be your own children, it may be a niece or nephew or a younger brother or sister or somebody, but you have a child that you love. Is that true? You have some. Okay, all right. Don't know if you, if you didn't raise your hand, if you don't, but maybe you will someday, okay? Maybe you fall into that category. Third, third premise is this, that you would really like to see that child follow God for the rest of their life. I'm going to make that assumption that that's true. Is that true of you? Now, that's where we're going today. We're going to talk about that, and let's begin with prayer, and then we'll jump right into it, okay? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we talk about this important issue of seeing our children grow up to follow you with their lives, that, Father, as I share, that I can be consistent with what your Word says, and that, Father, that you will be able to put within each one that's here real direction and passion about how they ought to respond to these thoughts this morning. And I commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever seen there's an incredible contrast and parallel between two of the stories in the Bible. Have you ever thought about the two biblical sons? First of all, Joseph in the Old Testament, and then the prodigal son in the New Testament. There are some awesome, awesome parallels between the two stories. Uh, think about this with me. In both of the stories of Joseph and then the prodigal, the story is about a father and his son. In both of the stories, the focus is on a younger son, Joseph being a one, prodigal in the other story. In both of the stories, the son goes away to a far country. Joseph is taken as a slave. Prodigal decided on his own. In both of the stories, the father thought the son had died when in fact he was still alive. Isn't that amazing? Both stories. Both of the stories, there's a famine in that far country that has a big impact on the storyline of what goes on. In both of the stories, the father gives the son a robe. Remember that in both stories? And in both of the stories, it causes jealousy on the part of the older brother or brothers. 
In both of the stories, another thing. The son is tempted with sexual sins. In both of the stories, at the end, when they're reunited, the brothers aren't happy. They're not happy to see the younger brother once more. And in both of the stories, they end with a joyful reunion with the father and fellowship is restored. Amazing, amazing parallels between two common stories that we know quite well in Scripture. But maybe you're saying, wait a minute, they're not, everything is parallel. Yes, there are some contrasts as well. And think about the contrast. Remember, Joseph started off in that foreign land of Egypt as a slave. The prodigal started off how? He had gotten half his family's fortune. He was rich when he started in that far country. Joseph ended with wealth. The prodigal, of course, lost all his and ended with nothing. Joseph refused to commit adultery. The prodigal, according to the older brother, partied with prostitutes. Joseph, with honor, brings his father to him at the end of the story. And the prodigal, with figuratively his tail between his legs, returns home to his father in humiliation. The bottom line is kind of this. Of, of all the stories in the Bible, there's not a better story illustrating godly wisdom than the story of the Old Testament Joseph. It's an amazing story of this young man that made wise decisions throughout his life. And the prodigal is a catastrophic, sad story of a young man that made bad decisions and demonstrated human foolishness. Two stories, very similar in many ways, and yet they provide a contrast for us about two sons. It brings me to a question. It's been a question of a lot of research lately, but here's the question. Are our Christian kids, let me say, are our American Christian kids turning out to be more like modern-day Josephs? Are they turning out to be more like modern-day prodigals? That's been the subject of a lot of research, and let me say that it's also important to us here. Here are some of the, uh, some of the organizations that have done the research. It was started by the Barna Group, a Christian research organization, about in 2003, and yet it has continued to be a subject of a lot of research. Without taking the time to go into all of it, let me just kind of bottom line it for all of you in the next slide. Here's, here's what one research said. This was one by Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist publisher and research organization. But they, sub, but they surveyed not just Southern Baptists, but all Protestant denominations, and they found out this, that seven in 10 of our Christian young people quit attending the church between the ages of 18 and 22. Seven out of 10 quit. And then of those seven to 10, two to three will come back between the ages of 23 and 30. Now that means that at the age of 30, there are still four or five of our Christian young people out of every 10 that have walked away from their faith and have not come back. Now, I said at the beginning, I, I, I said, do you have a child that you love? And a lot of you raised your hand. Yes, I've got a child I love. Would you like to see that child live for God the rest of their life? You said, yes, I'd like that child to live for God the rest of their life. I want to tell you that the odds are not very good. I don't know if Springbrook is different. You see, that's a question for us today. Is Springbrook different 
than the rest of the churches in America. Let's make it more personal. Is your family different than the average Christian family in America? Because in the average Christian family in America, at least one half of children are walking away from their faith and not enough of them are coming back. The LifeWay research is typical. The very best of the research says one half of our young people are walking away. Now, in our children's ministry and youth ministry this weekend, between last night and 9 o'clock service and this morning, we have about 200 children here at Springbrook. You know what that means? It means that if we could look into the future 15 years from now, of the 200 children that attend here, that are here this weekend involved in services, there will likely be somewhere around 120 of them that will walk away and no longer live for God or maybe not even believe in Jesus Christ. Some of them will come back, but not enough of them will come back. And I want to tell you, I believe that is the crisis facing churches in America. I don't know what the numbers are, but I want to tell you that after the nine o'clock, the five o'clock service last night, and after the nine o'clock service this morning, again and again and again, people my age from this church that are part of this congregation have come up to me afterwards and told me the deep griefs of their heart as they have had young ch uh, children grow up to adults, and now those adults have walked away and abandoned their faith. One man just told me this morning, he said, I'm 0 for 3. Another one said, I'm 2 for 4. And those that are my age are telling me this is the greatest grief of their heart is that their own children, their adult children, have walked away from their faith and not living for God like they would like to see. And I'm saying to you that are young parents, there is no greater grief that will come to you later in life than if your children walk away and abandon their faith. There are so many bad consequences to your children walking away. It ought to be of great concern to us that we are desire to see our children follow God. Are you with me? Is it something that you would like to see so much that you would listen to what I have to say today and be ready to make some changes if in fact some changes are needed? Would you like to see your children follow God? Well, I don't have any magic bullets. And we know that, that, that in every family, even in the most godly of Christian homes, sometimes young people walk away. Why? Because Christianity, faith in Jesus Christ, is an individual decision. And they can't make it just because mom and dad make it. They have to make it for themselves. Amen? So even in the best of homes, some kids will walk away. But 50%, 70%, it's too many. And we can't see that here. And we can't see it in America. We've got to do a better job of keeping our kids in the faith. Now what do we do? I want to share with you th three things this morning. And I'm not going to ask you to respond outwardly, but inwardly. I'm going to ask you to respond to each one. And I'm going to ask you, are these things that you would be willing to do? Here's number one. The first one I want to spend a little time on, not so much on the other two, but on this one I want to spend some time. First one is this, settle the responsibility issue. 
I'm in my late 50s, you can probably tell. And if there's something that my generation didn't do well, it was that we did not understand this. And if you're of a younger generation, I apologize to you because we've not done a very well, very good job of passing on what I believe is a very important truth of Scripture to you. You see, this passage tells us who's responsible. Here's what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this first part of the verse, and fathers, says who's responsible. It's not the church. Springbrook Community Church is not first responsible for the spiritual future of your children. Moms, dads, grandparents, it is the responsibility first of the family to make sure that their children are receiving training to follow God. It is your responsibility. I wanted you to look with me at the context on the next slide. Here's what it is. It begins in chapter 5 of Ephesians 20, or chapter 5, verse 22 of Ephesians, and goes through 6, 9. And in this passage, there are six commands given. The six commands are in pairs, three pairs. And they have to do with the relationship of some of the most basic relationships of the human life. The first one is a command to wives and then one to husbands. What's a command to wives? Somebody shout it out. What's a command to wives? Uh, wives submit to your husband. You know, that one's always a real quiet one. Let's do better on the next one. How, how, what's a command to husbands? Husbands, love your wives. Okay, command to wife is how they respond to husband. Husband, how they respond to their wife. Then there's the one we just love. Ephesians 6 1. You know what it says, children? Obey your parents. Oh, we love that one. That's a great one. We use that all the time. Love, children, obey your parents. And then there's a command to parents that we're talking about here. And then there's another set about employer, employee, or in biblical terms, servants and masters. All of us are in those relationships. There's one command to each. But of the words that I put up on the screen, one of the words is a wrong word. Which word is wrong? Of wives and husbands, children and parents, parents is the one that is wrong. It's interesting that in Scripture, it says children obey your parents, both mother and father. But when it says who's responsible, it is more specific and doesn't say parents. It could have because there's the word for parents in the Greek language. Instead, it says specifically fathers. So I'm telling you men, argue with Scripture if you want to, but it's real clear that you primarily are responsible for the spiritual training of your children. You are responsible. It is in your course. If you're in a family that, where the father's not there or you're here as a single parent and there's no dad involved, that doesn't mean that you can't take the responsibility yourself. But... God's ideal is that the fathers are the ones that are responsible for the spiritual training of their kids. And I want to say to you this morning, let's settle the responsibility issue. It's parents. It's not the kids of the kingdom leadership. It's not Justin, our youth pastor, or the staff that works with him. It's not the Awana leadership. It is parents that are primarily responsible for the spiritual training of their kids. Got it? 
Now, just in case, I want to go a little bit further in this verse. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Next slide. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's what the verse goes on to say. Now, normally, when we think of a father that provokes his children to anger, we think of maybe an abusive father, an, a father that's too strict of a disciplinarian, or the reverse, a father that's never there, a father that's uh, maybe too lenient. And we think, well, that's a father that's provoking his children to anger. I'm not one of those. But look at the passage, what it says. Do not provoke your children to anger, but. What does but indicate? In the English language, when you see a but, what does it tell you? A contrast, a comparison. Don't do this, but. Contrast. In other words, we have to understand the top phrase, the one that's highlighted, in light of what's said after the but. And the contrast is, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord are those who are not provoking their children to anger. The, ind the indication is if, if you don't bring them up, you are provoking them to anger. That tells us who violates the responsibility. And then the third phrase tells us this, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This one is the one that God used to do an incredible work in my heart about 10 years ago. You see, I've been involved in children's ministry, in particular Awana, but I've been, been, been involved in children's ministry since I was 27. God called me. I love working with kids. God called me to the ministry of speaking to kids and working with them, and it's been my life's work. In fact, Diane and I were missionaries in the Los Angeles area, and we worked with the Awana clubs in that area for 17 years while my children were growing up. And while my children were growing up, I was busy ministering to other people's kids. At the same time, I wanted so desperately that my two would grow up to follow God. So I was busy. I was busy in my ministry, but to make sure that my own kids follow God, we sacrificed and made sure that they were in a Christian school. Diane would stay home when I had Sunday engagements and would take our kids to church because I wanted to make sure they were always in church. And of course, we worked in Awana, so they had to be in the Awana club that we had in our church. And I thought, as a father, I was doing the job because I was getting my kids involved in all the Christian things, involving in all those things while I was out ministering to other people's children and helping other people's children to follow God. And then I saw this verse. And in particular, I saw the phrase, bring them up, and I understood something about that phrase. You see, this phrase defines who is to do it. Not who's just to be responsible. It defines who is to do it. In the Greek language, there is grammatical structure just like there is in English. I don't know how many of you remember high school English. Do you remember that there are the two voices in English? There's the active voice and the passive voice. Anybody have a vague memory of that? <laughs> you know, and uh, this one is in the active voice. And it hit me one day that I had treated this like it was passive voice. And I'm convinced that many dads, Christian dads in America, have done the same thing of my generation. We treat it as if it's passive voice, not active. You know what it would be if you took this command and put it in passive voice? 
would be this. Fathers, have your children brought up. You see, the difference is when it's passive, you see that it's get done, but you don't have to do it yourself. When it's active voice, you've got, you see it gets done and you've got to do it yourself. You're the agent of the action. When it's active voice, and this command is in active voice. And I, as a father, blew it when my kids were little because I saw that it got done, but I wasn't involved like I should in doing it myself. I delegated it away to Diane, my wife. God's given me one of the most, the most godly wife anybody could ask for. And I had great confidence in her ability, but as a father, I wasn't involved like I should have been in the spiritual training of my own kids. Now, let me share with you how I think that this fits in so many homes in America, Christian homes in America. I think when we talk about the spiritual training of our kids, most Christian parents have some idea, yeah, I should be involved in that. So parents generally think, yeah, I know I'm responsible. But it produces a conflict because they also feel something. And what they do is they feel inadequate. I, I've learned that most men feel inadequate about leading their home spiritually because we learn by example, and, and our dads didn't do such a good job. We've never seen it done. Maybe our dad wasn't even a believer. We just don't know what it looks like, and we're so busy, and we're taught that the best way that we lead our families is provide for them, so we're busy with our jobs and everything else. And this whole thing of spiritual leading our family, we just feel inadequate to do it. And then there's something else we think. We think the children's workers in the churches are the experts. I mean, where are you going to find somebody to really train, train your kids spiritually? Well, a church. That's a pretty good place. And when we send our kids there, then we feel relieved about it. It's kind of like this. Let's suppose you want your child to learn to play the piano. But you don't know how to play the piano yourself. What do you do? If you want your child to learn to play the piano and you don't know yourself, what do you do? Hire a piano teacher. Amen? That's what you do. And then you feel like, oh, good, I've got a pro helping with this. I've got somebody that knows it. In this church, you hire Lori Harrison to do it. Train your kids to play the piano. Good, good, I've got somebody that really knows this. Do you understand that we do the same thing with training our kids? If we feel inadequate, we bring them to kids of the kingdom. And it's kind of like, okay, those people in there, they know how to train kids spiritually. And we begin to relieve, feel relieved. We do that, what we end up doing is delegating a responsibility that is first ours. The church has a responsibility to train our children as well, but it first belongs in the home. Now, what happens when we delegate? Here's what happens. I think that the parents then think the job is getting done. It's like this. Suppose that you're a parent of a, of a second grader. We're going to name her Susie. And it's time for parent-teacher conferences, and so you go to meet Susie's teacher, and you sit in the office with Susie's teacher. Susie's teacher says, oh, I'm so glad you came in. I really need to talk to you about Susie. And your heart kind of sinks. You know there's bad news coming, just the way she said it. And she says, you know, she says, Susie is really behind the other kids. We've been learning, starting to learn our mathematical multiplication tables, and Susie's really behind the rest of the class. And if you don't do something, I, we need your help as parents to jump in and help with it. Because if you don't do something, Susie's not going to be able to get the multiplication tables down. 
So you leave the meeting, and where do you go? Very first thing that you do is you head for the nearest Walmart or Target, and you buy the flashcard so you get home. And you say, Susie, we're going to work on these every night till we get you caught up. You do it at home because you think that it's not being done at school. But suppose the situation is the opposite. Suppose you go and talk to Susie's teacher. Susie's teacher says, I need to talk to you about Susie. And your heart kind of sinks. But the teacher says, oh, no, no. Susie's doing great. In fact, she is so far above everybody else that, that she's on top of the class on knowing multiplication tables. Let me ask you, do you stop by Walmart? No. You see, you don't get the flashcards. Why? When, when you think that it's being done somewhere else, you do it at home. When you think that it's being done somewhere else, you don't do it at home. If it's not being done somewhere else, you do do it at home. So parents think the job is getting done, and when we think the job is being done at church, then we feel like we don't need to do it at home. Well, that's better than nothing. Thank God that all of you are bringing your children that have children, that they're involved in Kids of the Kingdom, involved in the youth group here. But if that's all there is, if you're relying on that for the spiritual training of your kids, let me tell you there are some disastrous results around the corner. And it's because of a couple things. One of the consequences is this. Spiritual training to your children then simply look like an activity that they're involved in. Nothing different than soccer or anything else. From their perspective, it just looks like another thing they do unless you connect it at home. And then there's another one that is so important. Truth isn't really instilled in the heart. You see, the heart of a child is not formed for an hour at church. The heart of a child is formed in your home. It's formed on the basis of regular interaction in the family. That means extended family as well as the immediate family. But the hearts of children are formed in the home by parents, first of all, then by grandparents, then by aunts and uncles, by older brothers and sisters. Those are the things that mostly form the heart of a child. And when parents and grandparents delegate away the responsibility of spiritually training their kids to the church, we're not having the impact that we want to have. Now you can see that I'm talking a lot about parents, but I want you to look at a couple scriptures with me. And I want you to just see that it's more than just parents. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 2, so that you, your children, and their children after them. You see, three generations. I want all of you that are parents or grandparents to think three generations out. What are you doing so your grandchildren will follow God if you're a young parent? What are you doing in order to impact three generations after you to follow God? Look at the next one. Esther 9, 27 and 28, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year. Talking about some feasts. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family. Wouldn't you like it if everyone that followed after you was a follower of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you like to be able to say, you know, you're saying, well, Larry's kind of pie in the sky. I know, but humor me for a minute. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that for generations after you, your family line follows the Lord? Wouldn't you love to say that? You see, that's the biblical model 
that is put in front of us. Here's another one. Joel 1.13, 1.3. Tell it to your children. So that's how many generations you tell it to your children. How many generations is that? Two, right? Let your children tell it to their children. How many generations is that? Three. And their children to the next generation. Four generations. We are to have a vision for four generations out. So it doesn't matter if you're a parent or a grandparent or extended family. We are to be involved in our children following God. And just for those of us that are older, a great verse. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. You know, even when we're old and gray, God can use us to influence a younger generation to follow God. But it's our responsibility in our homes. Are you with me? If we said, uh, my point was, number one, settle the responsibility issue. Will you settle it in your heart right now? That it's not the church that's primarily responsible for the spiritual training of kids. It's your home where it needs to take place more than anything else. Second thing is this. Set a target. You know, I, I don't know if the statement applies to you or not. Maybe to some, probably not to a number of you. I know some of you, and I know how intentional you are. But across the country, Christian parents are mostly hopeful that their kids will follow God, but it's not occurred to many of them to be intentional. I want to tell you about a plane trip I had uh, a few years ago, about three years ago, when I was writing the manuscript for my book that's out there. I was traveling back from San Jose, California, here to Chicago. I was sitting beside a young man, probably about 30, and we struck up a conversation. I asked him what he was doing out in San Jose, and he said he had been out there in order to meet his new bosses. His company had gotten bought out by Yahoo, so he was out there to meet the Yahoo brass. And I asked him what his company did. He said, well, we help other companies develop an Internet presence. I said, what's your job? He says, well, I'm a planner. I'm a strategist and a planner. And I go into companies, and I help other companies put their plans and strategies together. I said, do you like your work? He says, I love what I do. And he tells me all about it. Then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I work with a Christian organization. You know, when you're a pastor or a missionary or something, you say, you throw out a word like that and watch people's body language to see whether, how they react. And I didn't get any reaction from him. I thought, well, that doesn't mean anything to him. And so we talked a little bit more, and I was writing, and then I thought, you know what, I want to ask this guy some questions. So I turned to him. We had had a good conversation. I said, would you mind if I ask you a couple questions? He said, yeah, that'd be fine. I said, do you have kids? He told me he was married. I said, do you have kids? He says, yeah, I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. I said, so here's my question. What do you want to be able to say about your two kids when they're 30? You know what this long-range strategist at work said to me? This guy that loves strategy at work, you know what he said about his two kids? He literally said, I've never thought about that. And then he started to answer my question. He said, well, uh, let's see, 30, um, settled in a home, you know, started to purchase a home, probably got their graduate degree or something, happily married, uh, got a grandkid or two on the way, you know, and he's going down this list of things like that. But he wasn't going where I was wanting him to go. So I said, well, let me ask you a second question. What, had what would cause your heart to grieve 
if you had to say it about your kids when you're 30, when they're 30? I want to tell you, folks, that's a really important question. What would cause your heart to grieve if you had to say it about your kids when they're 30? You know what he said to me? He said, literally, he said, oh, well, if they were lost. He meant lost spiritually. I was talking to a Christian dad. And he said more later that let me know he is a Christian dad. But when I asked him the first question, he never even thought about anything spiritual. It had never entered his mind to be intentional or to have a target or a plan for his kids. Boy, he had it for their education. He had it for their career. But he had never thought about being intentional about their kids' spiritual growth. I'm suggesting to you as parents and grandparents, will you be intentional and have a target for the spiritual training of your kids? Not just for their education or for their athletics, but for their spiritual growth. Have a target. Don't just be hopeful. Be intentional as to what your kids do. So what's a target? Let me suggest Joseph. He's a great target. Think about it. He was 17 when he went away into Egypt. He went into a pagan culture with no spiritual support. He was away from his family. He was tempted every day with sexual sin, and he was treated unfairly because of the faith. Doesn't that sound like going to a secular university today? I mean, is that secular university today or what? But you know the amazing thing, Joseph somehow was so committed to his faith in God that he never once wavered in his obedience to God. Wouldn't you love to have a kid grow up like that? A modern-day Joseph that stands for God no matter what. No matter what temptation comes, no matter how they're treated, they stand for God. Wouldn't you love to raise a kid like that? Well, what's it take? I'm amazed that I have a chance to speak to people that I, that I often... Ask young parents or even parents my age, have you ever had the conversation? Just the one conversation. What will it take for our kids to follow God? So if you're sitting here as a married couple, have you ever talked about it? Maybe the only takeaway from today is when you walk out and as you go to lunch or whatever you do today, that you'll turn to each other and say, what will it take for our kids to follow God? Have you ever even talked about it? There ever been a subject of discussion. Start there and set a target. We want our kids to follow God. You said you did. So let's get intentional about it. Let's set a target and begin to guide our daily activities towards making sure that that target is accomplished. Let's set a target. How about the third one? Then start training. Proverbs 22, 6, you probably, many of you know this verse, train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Train a child. You know, there's a lot of debate over the end of this verse. Is that a promise or is it just a general principle? I want to focus instead on the first word, train. You know what training is. You go to a restaurant today and two servers come to take your order. You immediately know One's a trainer and one's a trainee. And the trainer will probably ask you if it's a brand new trainee, brand new employee, they'll ask, the trainer will ask you what your order is. You know how it works. The trainee watches the trainer. And they'll watch the trainer for I don't know how long. 
half a day, a day. And then the trainee begins to start taking orders herself or himself. And the trainer steps back and kind of watches. And then after a little while, the trainee does it all, and the trainer watches. And then when the trainer sees that the trainee's doing it correctly, the trainers, the trainees then on their own, they become a server. And then eventually a trainer. Let me ask you, are you training your children? Are you doing that, training your children to follow God? A lot of times we lecture, we tell them, but do we train them? I'm asking you this morning three things. Get the, re get the responsibility right, set a target, and start training. What's training? Well, it involves some things at the church and involves some things in the home. I want to just end with some quick thoughts about what we're going to be doing here at the church and then also some things that you as parents or others can be doing to better see our kids follow God. Here's some changes we're going to do. I work in the Awana program here on Wednesday nights at Springbrook. And in our Awana program, especially in the third through sixth grades, we're going to be doing a little bit of restructuring of some of the parts of the club meeting, specifically the, the time where they work in their books, in order to better encourage our children that are involved in Awana to learn scripture at home. We're going to give you parents better tools to work with your children and to help them to, to learn scripture there and then come to club and recite what they have learned. It's best if your children learn at home. Secondly, I talked with Pastor Richard, and, and this topic of parents raising their kids spiritually is something that he really resonates with. And, and he said, we'll do small group studies on that this fall. If you're interested in this topic for a small group study this fall, we're going to be forming some small groups specifically around this particular issue and addressing it that way. Third thing is, there's a movie coming out this fall that I want you to see. It's one called Courageous. I'm telling you this. This is just my recommendation. I've seen it twice, seen the previews twice. It's a movie called Courageous. It's done by the same company that did Fireproof and Facing the Giants. It's a great Christian movie about four police dads and one other dad trying to figure out how to lead their family spiritually. And I just want to tell you, it's an awesome movie. It's coming out at the end of September. September 30th is the opening date. And in fact, if you want to know more about it, go onto the website, look it up, CourageousMovie.com, and you'll see. Great, great movie. Be a good reminder to come back and talk about this. And then we understand that there are many of us men who struggle with understanding. So what does it really mean to guide our family spiritually? It will continue to be a topic of interest in our men's ministry. You know, get involved in men's ministry. We're going to shoulder-to-shoulder tackle this thing and support and encourage one another so that we are doing a better job as men in the spiritual training of our kids. And then there are some things we can do as parents. If you're here this morning and you're a parent, I want to just give you four words to remember. One is modeling. You know what it is. It's being the example. You know, there's no more powerful way for you to train the, your children than to simply model for them Christian faith. How's your walk with God? The second thing is to get excited about it. You know what you get excited about as a dad or a mom has a huge impact on the way that your children think. Some people say that emotion is the highway to the heart. You want to affect the hearts of your children 
you've got to get excited about the right thing. Do you ever get excited about spiritual things? It's amazing to me how many dads are so successful in getting their children to be sports fans of the same teams as them. Well, maybe not so much for the Cubs this year, but, but you know what I'm saying, that when we get excited about our team, our kids follow and they have the same loyalties we do. That excitement is what drives loyalty to the same thing. Get excited about spiritual things. Number three, get involved. You know, there are some needs in children's ministry here. I want to put a different twist on it. Don't get involved in children's ministry because they need help. Get involved in children's ministry so you are doing an activity, a spiritual activity with your own children. Get involved with them in spiritual activity. My guess is that there are some families here, you're very involved with your children, but none of the things that you are involved with them are spiritual. Get involved in something spiritual where you're doing it together. And finally, on the last page, there is a blessing. I encourage you as parents to start a pattern of reciting this blessing over your children that are still at home every night as a habit of life. I'll tell you, it will have an incredible impact on your children to recite these words over your children on a regular basis. Well, what if you're not a parent? What if you're a grandparent or great-grandparent or aunt and uncle? You know, what if you don't have kids yet? Well, you see three of the words are the same. The bottom three are the same. You can do the same thing. You can be a model. Oh, you grandparents, model the Christian faith to your grandkids. Amen? Get excited about the things of God in front of them. Get involved with them any way that you can. For Diane and I, our grandchildren, we have five, four in Colorado Springs and one's in California. It's tough. So we've learned to text all the time with our grandkids. Diane texts scripture verses to our grandkids on, on a very regular basis. We want to input into their lives spiritual things. We pray for them. We have five, so we pray for the oldest on Monday, the second oldest on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. We have specific things. We want to be involved, and that's the word that's different. You know, as, as aunts and uncles and grandparents, you can absolutely pray. I believe in the power of prayer. I'm sure you do as well. So maybe this morning, if you're in that position, you'll say, you know what? I will commit myself to better, more faithfully praying for those children that I love. You said you love children at the beginning. You have some that you love, and that you have, you would love to see them grow up to follow God. Will you be more intentional this morning, this week, and in the weeks to come? Will you settle the responsibility issue? Will you set a target? Will you start training? Let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this church. I pray, Father, that, that you will enable us to be more effective and more efficient in what we do in raising our kids to follow you. Father, we pray for every parent, every grandparent that's here, that they will understand the responsibility is theirs. They will take it seriously, and they'll begin to step up and, and to be involved in the spiritual training. Father, if there's some that don't know how, we pray that you'll help them to understand that. And then, Father, we, we would pray so desperately for our children here that the young people in this church will grow up follow you, every one of them, and that not a one of them would turn away from you. We pray, we commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.